This radio broadcast is a useful overview of Friedrich Engel's life, and we are uploading it here to preserve and disseminate it. We encourage you to read Engel's groundbreaking works after listening. He was born into a prosperous business family in a very pious part of Germany. He went hunting, socialised with industrialists and was a member of many clubs. But without him, a certain Karl Marx, one of the most influential thinkers of our time and the inspiration for worldwide socialist and communist movements, well, he might have remained an obscure German intellectual and the 20th century could have taken a very different course. Big claims? Possibly. But more importantly, who am I talking about? Friedrich Engels, that's who. One half of a celebrated 19th century intellectual partnership and a catalyst and major thinker in his own right. Engels preferred to remain in the shadow of his senior, but it was he who enabled Marx to write his seminal works, indeed penned a classic or two himself, and all the while was giving Marx crucial ideas, analytical insights and detailed information. Friedrich Engels led a colourful, some might say double life, moving seamlessly between rich capitalists and destitute workers, fighting in a revolution as well as making a fortune on the stock market. Like or loathe the ideology, this junior partner in the double act with Marx is a man who deserves his own show. And that is what he's getting today on the forum on the BBC World Service. I'm Rajan Datta, and to help me trace the key moments in Friedrich Engels' life, I'm joined by four experts. Jonathan Sperber, Professor of History at the University of Missouri. Terrell Carver, Professor of Political Theory at the University of Bristol. The writer and journalist, Dr Belinda Webb-Blofeld, who has a particular interest in Engels' relationship with women. And Dr Christian Krell, director of the Nordic office of the Friedrich Ebert Foundation and lecturer at Bonn University. Welcome all. Um, So firstly, Engels' life spanned the greater part of the 19th century, from 1820 to 1895, and he was witness and participant in the enormous social and political changes that swept through Europe during that time. But even though he spent a large part of his life abroad, most of that time in the UK, it was his business-owning family back in his native Germany that set some of the key directions for his life. Jonathan, tell me, how was that? How did they do that? Engels' life course was determined by his rebellion against two key elements of his family. One was that they were eminent capitalists, textile merchants and manufacturers. Um, They started one of the very first steam-powered textile mills in Central Europe. Engels rebelled against that. He hated capitalism. He became a communist. His family were also, as we would say today, born-again Christians, evangelical Protestants, or as the Germans said, pietists. Engels rebelled against that too and became an atheist. Indeed, he was an atheist long before he was a communist, and that was one of the very first things that started his break with his family. But they gave him money, Jonathan, didn't they? That's, that was quite important. They did They did, um, They did. did subsidise him for a long time until they uh, lost patience with that, their errant sign. So let's look then at Engels' early life. Before following his father into a business career, he was more interested in journalism and literature and philosophy. Is that right? Uh, yes, that's um, absolutely right. Uh, I think it's important to grasp that um, during this period, a lot of um, political rebellion and agitation was uh, conducted through literature and through music particularly. And um, Engels was certainly part of that, even as a teenager. 
He wrote teenage works uh, about the clearance of the Seminole Indians in Florida. It's an epic poem expressing sorrow at how badly these people are treated. He wrote about uh, pushing back the Turkish Empire. He actually wrote a libretto for a schoolboy opera on Bulwer-Lytton's novel Rienzi, which is about overthrowing a corrupt uh, oligarchy in medieval Rome. Incidentally, uh, Wagner was working on his opera at just about the same time, which was rather more successful. So he was definitely a bit of a, a polymath, if you like, and he was also, I think, a, a good swimmer. Um, he practised fencing and riding, and he was a bit of a socialiser, and it's claimed he spoke 24 languages. Well, I'm not sure about the 24 <laughs> languages, and certainly not at that point, but uh, he uh, was uh, pushed uh, out of education by his family into a kind of trading house in the seaport of Bremen, and I think he started to pick up uh, English uh, or other languages at that point, and that, that was quite formative. He was quite physical there, and he was also quite social but still rebellious. He uh, said he went to the opera without gloves and noted that uh, with glee. <laughs> but the young Engels wrote more than just romantic poetry. He had a sharp pen as a journalist too. Work in low rooms where people breathe more coal fumes and dust than oxygen and in the majority of cases beginning already at the age of six is bound to deprive them of all strength and joy in life. The weavers who have individual looms in their homes sit bent over them from morning till night and desiccate their spinal marrow in front of a hot stove. Terrible poverty prevails among the lower classes, particularly the factory workers in Wuppertal. Syphilis and lung diseases are so widespread as to be barely credible. In Elberfeld alone, out of 2,500 children of school age, 1,200 are deprived of education and grow up in the factories, merely so that the manufacturer need not pay the adults whose place they take twice the wage he pays the child. But the wealthy manufacturers have a flexible conscience, and causing the death of one child more or one less does not doom a pietist soul to hell, especially if he goes to church twice every Sunday. So clearly Engels was a passionate writer and a good journalist with a particular talent for description. And, and Christian, from Engels' early work, we can see his clear sympathy for exploited workers already. But let's look at the seeds of his rebellion. He was critical of religion, as has been mentioned already, wasn't he? Let's talk about that. Yeah, that's true. I, I would say that the critique of religion was, was related to being part of the young Hegelians, a group of, of left-leaning philosophers in Berlin. You know, Hegel was at that time when Engels came to Berlin. He was a kind of a philosophical rock star. And even though he passed away earlier, he was still very present. And if you wanted to take part in a debate among young intellectuals, if you wanted to, to belong to the cool guys, so to say, you had to be aware of Hegel. And Engels then came in contact with that group and I think he took two things from that group and one thing was as you said the critique of religion and as Jonathan said earlier that was a big thing given that he was raised in a strongly pietist Calvinist environment in the first instance he tried to hide that from his family but the second thing that he took from the Segalians was the idea that history is directed towards a certain goal and there's a guiding force of history and that guiding force is spirit, reason, rationality, etc. And there was also a meeting he had with, I think, one of the first German communists, wasn't there, Moses Hess? 
Yes, that's true. Uh, he's almost forgotten a uh, German communist, and I'm grateful that you mention him because uh, the meeting with Moses Hess was one of the reasons why he distanced himself from the young Hegelians. Engels came to the conclusion by talking to Moses Hess that it is not idealism, but it is materialism that shapes the events of history. It's it's the, the manner in which wealth is distributed in society. It's not ideas or certain spirit that is important. And Jonathan, Engels then went to Berlin. And even before that, there seems to be a pattern that was set for the rest of his life, which is kind of, he leads a respectable existence during the day and in the office or whatever, but he's a radical in his spare time. He even uses a pseudonym as a writer. It's a real kind of double life, isn't it? It is. Engels hated that. He wanted to be a full-time radical politician, activist, revolutionary. He tried that between 1845 and 1850 until his parents yanked his allowance. And then for the next 20 years, he was, of course, uh, having that dual existence you point to. But in 1870, after he'd made a fortune in the textile business, he gave up his business activities and spent the last quarter century of his life once again as a full-time radical activist. Well, we'll come to that in due course. But Belinda, in 1842, Engels made his second trip to England. His first visit was in, in the late 1830s. It was brief. And as it happened, 1842 was the year of large working-class protests uh, centred on the northwest, where Engels started in a junior position in the factory that his father co-owned. Tell me, what did he think of Manchester? Well, we know that he was shocked. He was shocked at the depravity and the conditions in which the workers of the many mills or factories in Manchester were living. You've got to set the scene, really. Manchester in the 1840s, there were so many mills or factories, yet not enough housing. The factories relied on the latest technology, yet the workers lived, you know, in either badly built dwellings or in old houses and cellars. The cellars were incredibly um, now infamous and notorious because you could have three, four families in one cellar and maybe a pig or two thrown in at the same time. To say they were damp would be an understatement. They were pestilent, noxious. And Engels talked about the Industrial Revolution and how it just did not benefit these these people who went to work in these factories. In fact, people who, who went into the, into the big cities and towns like Manchester and Liverpool, their mortality was four times higher than their counterparts in the, in the countryside. The skies were darkened with the filth and fumes emitted from the factories. The rivers were polluted different colours from the dyes used on the textiles. And the, Manchester, you know, and, and some people don't realise this, but Manchester was full of amputees, people who had worked in the factories from the age of eight, nine, working as scavengers, who had lost limbs in factory accidents. So it's a pretty horrendous experience for him, but within a short time of his arrival in Manchester, Engels met Mary Burns, who was to remain his partner for the next 20 years. Tell me, who was she and, and what was her background? So Mary Burns, um, little is known of Mary, but what we do know about her is that she came from Irish parents, uh, Michael Burns, a textile dyer, and her mother Mary Conroy, and they were immigrants from County Tipperary in Ireland. And Mary Burns herself worked in many of the factories, probably from a very young age, and she also worked in service, in domestic service, before she met uh, Frederick Engels in 18, towards the latter end of 1842. And from what fragments of information information survive about her was an incredibly spirited young woman. She was two years younger than Frederick Engels. She led him round those slums in Manchester and was, as some 
people have described his helpful entree into the dark underworld of Manchester. At the same time, wouldn't you still say that that the relationship between Engels and Mary was still a pretty unlikely relationship, at least on the face of it. I I think um, it was perhaps unlikely, but he set up home with her. Um, You could say she was some sort of concubine, but they were in their political circles together as man and wife. They were treated as such. You know, whilst we may think it was an unlikely match, um, they were in the same circles. Well, it was on his way to Manchester on the second visit that Engels also had the first meeting with one of his newspaper editors, one Karl Marx. Uh, How did that go, Jonathan? It actually did not go very well. Uh, Marx thought Engels was one of the Berlin young Hegelians whom Marx saw as a bunch of dilettantes, whose radicalism was largely expressed in lifestyle extravagances, who were not interested in serious social, political and economic change. It was almost two years later um, when they met again in Paris in 1844 that Marx decided Engels was really okay and was, in fact, pretty good. Um, That was after he read a lot of Engels' works on economics. Within a couple of years of his first arrival in Manchester, Engels was collecting his impressions of the city and of England in general in his first book. Based on a series of articles which he published in a political magazine edited by Marx, the book was printed in 1845, when Engels was still only 25 years old, and it was under the title whose English translation is The Condition of the Working Class in England. It was actually printed in German, not in English until 1887. Now, in this book, Engels' journalistic pen was, if anything, even sharper than when he was reporting on his native Wuppertal. After describing the dreadful living conditions of workers in London and Manchester, Engels tackles the cause of proletarian misery. The proletarian who has nothing but his two hands, who consumes today what he earned yesterday, who is subject to every possible chance and has not the slightest guarantee for being able to earn the barest necessities of life, whom every crisis, every whim of his employer may deprive of bread, this proletarian is placed in the most revolting, inhuman position conceivable for a human being. The only difference as compared with the old outspoken slavery is this, that the worker of today seems to be free because he is not sold once and for all but piecemeal, by the day, the week, the year. And because no one owner sells him to another, but instead he is forced to sell himself in this way, being the slave of no particular person, but of the whole property-holding class. Now... Christian, Engels wasn't by any means the only person decrying the terrible injustices of of early capitalism. So tell me, how was the book received? Well, it's true, Rajan, that this book was not the only description of the life of the workers, but the book, I would say, was, was relatively unique in its structure and its style and in the way in which it was written. And, and two things were distinct, I would say. First, it was one of the earliest examples of empirical research. He did actually go to the workers. He lived with them. He talked to them. He was not shy to go into the field, as we would say today. And, and he made his conclusions from real life and not just from the desk. And, and that was new. And second, he combined that empirical analysis with uh, with a political message, with the political message that the workers could become a class for themselves, a formation of people that, that could fight for their own interests and thereby not, not only changing their dreadful um, um, living and working conditions, but, but also history. And interestingly, this idea that the workers could become a class and that this class would lead a revolution that was brought to Marx 
by Engels. Yeah. Well, in fact, yes. So and, he and, was first, yeah. And, and Terrell, in, in, the, in the 1840s, there were a lot of strikes in, in the English industrial cities. I think three and a half million people signed a petition to demand voting rights for men. And Engels thought, as, as uh, Christian just said, that before long there would be a full-blown social revolution. At the end of the book, he says, it's too late for a peaceful solution. Was that a widely shared opinion of the day? Yes, that certainly was widely shown. Of course, the outbreak of revolutions all across Europe in 1848 is proof of that. So um, what he's doing there is picking up not just on uh, working class unrest, but on uh, widespread middle class unrest. And that, of course, uh, is driving revolutionary uh, movements uh, as they were in England and all the way across the continent. It's just in England, you know, they, they avoided the revolution, but it certainly hit everywhere else quite hard. So across Europe in the mid-1840s, revolutionary spirit was gathering momentum, and it was at that time that Marx and Engels and other radicals assembled in Brussels. And from Brussels, Marx and Engels helped organise um, with workers' groups across Western Europe, um, including the Communist League. And it was for the League that the now famous Communist Manifesto was written. A spectre is haunting Europe the spectre of communism. All the powers of old Europe have entered into a holy alliance to exorcise this spectre. Pope and Tsar, Metternich and Guizot. Terrell, quite a lot of the final text of the manifesto was based on an earlier work by Engels called Principles of Communism. How important was he in the development of the manifesto? Well, I think he was very important, but um, scholars have focused on the um, initial drafts of the Communist Manifesto, which was being written for a committee. But I think if you look at the Manifesto Parts 1 and 2, which are the parts that people really read now, you can see that they have much, much more in common with Engels' journalism, of which there is quite a lot by that time, uh, somewhere between 50 and 100 articles, and he wrote them in English and German. The uh, narrative sweep, uh, I think, and the, the willingness to make a story out of history and also to use sarcasm in attacking bourgeois hypocrisy, that's straight out of the teenage angles. <laughs> and it's, it's quite unlike Marx's much more intellectual, abstract, kind of argumentative and ad hominem journalism that uh, he was used to. I think there's much more Marx in part three, which actually consists of a run-through of all the different kinds of socialism that uh, he didn't like. But as you say, the, the first two parts, in a sense, are much more stirring and, and snappy, if you like, snappy written than the later works that Marx in particular produced. So it was a good, better read because of Engels, basically, is what you're saying. Uh, yes, I think that's right. And if you look at Marx's early journalism, I mean, the word snappy does not come to mind. <laughs> well, Christian... The manifesto um, is now famous as perhaps the defining text of communism. But what influence, tell me, did it have on the 1848 revolutions that swept through mm. so many European countries? I would say it had almost no influence on, on the revolution. There's a huge contrast between the popularity of the manifesto today and, and then. Today it is, apart from religious literature, one of the most popular texts that was ever written worldwide. It has inspired millions of people. It has shaped the world and history. But when it was published in, in February 1848, almost no one took notice and it was even more forgotten in the two decades after. 
It was only published in a few languages, in German, Polish, Swedish, and it did not at all influence the revolution in France where the revolution started. It had some importance within an inner circle in, in Cologne and in Prussia, where Marx and Engels worked at a revolutionary newspaper, but it was not decisive. But there was a second career of that paper up from the 1870s when socialism became more popular um, and uh, for instance there was this book the anti during in 1878 published by engels where he laid out the principles of scientific socialism in an even more accessible and clearer language than in the manifesto or let alone the capital and that increased among other things the interest in the original text in the original source i would say and today it's it's a kind of bible for revolutionaries Well, Jonathan, the, the 1848 to 49 revolutions did allow Marx to return temporarily to what is now Germany from exile. And while there, he used his editorial skills to try and influence events. And those were exciting times for the pair. It was no longer just about theory, but also about practice. And it was Engels, however, who actually took part in the fighting, wasn't it? So it seems that he was the more active. He was prepared to get his hands dirty, in a way, compared to Marx. Well, what you're talking about were the uprisings of May of 1849, efforts across all of Germany to um, bring into power the constitution written by the Frankfurt National Assembly, establishing United Nation State. Both Marx and Engels regarded these uprisings as basically being run by a bunch of petty bourgeois incompetence um, and felt they were doomed to failure. Marx tried pragmatically first to get the National Assembly in Frankfurt to support these uprisings. That didn't work. He went off to Paris, um, hoped that there'd be a revolutionary upsurge in France, which would revive revolution in Europe. Engels decided to join the fighting in his native Wuppertal and then a little later in the Pfalz in southwestern Germany. Engels, however, never was afraid of letting his contempt for the insurgents show through. In the faults, he made so much fun of them. He denounced them as petty bourgeois incompetence. They actually arrested him and decided he was a Prussian spy. Several years later, the Bavarian government, which then ruled the faults, held the show trial of the insurgents. And one of their big efforts to prove that a communist reign of terror had descended over the regime was they said there was a Prussian newspaper editor who was arrested. They were quite unaware that the person arrested by the insurgents was in fact the notorious communist Friedrich Engels. Did Engels actually go on the battlefront there? Was he, was he fighting as it were? After he was arrested, he was brought to their capital in Kaiserslautern and then uh, turned over to August Willich, who led this volunteer corps of uh, insurgents. Um, Willich, who was actually a former Prussian lieutenant and a very good military man Uh, became a major general in the U.S. Army during the Civil War, the first and last communist to ever achieve such a high rank in the American armed forces. Very good fighters. Engels joined them. He joined in their battles in the uh, Palatinate, then on the right bank of the Rhine in Baden, and escaped at the very last minute from the Prussians um, into Switzerland. And I think he had a nickname later in life, the, the general, because he knew his military yeah, he was, stuff. Yeah, he was always an armchair strategist. He'd served, he'd done his military service as a, a reserve officer, Um, and so he, he did become known among Marx and his friends as the general. Well, after the fighting, now just turning 30, Friedrich Engels returns to Manchester to work for the company Ermin and Engels, which his father part owned. But he really disliked the place, Jonathan. So why did they go back there? All right. In 1850, Marx and Engels were living in exile in London. They had, to be quite honest, alienated all the other political exiles in the British capital city, and they were making plans to move on to New York, which may seem like an odd choice, but New York was then actually the world's third largest German city, 
and they thought they would continue their political radicalism there. The problem was they couldn't raise the money. Uh, neither Marx's nor Engels' family was prepared to give them money to do this, and so Engels really had no choice. They were both broke. They needed money. Engels' parents had finally cut off his allowance that they'd been paying all these years to their atheist revolutionary son. And so Engels did uh, agree to go back to work for his father's firm in Manchester, where he very quickly, as he went through the books, he very quickly discovered his father's business partners, the Ehrman brothers, were cheating him. And that made Engels an indispensable man for the family in Manchester, and so made it possible for him to earn a living and to support Marx, who with his family was living in desperate poverty in London. And Belinda, in Manchester, Engels was still with his partner, Mary Burns, and they had quite an unconventional living arrangement, didn't they? They did, yes. Um, Frederick Engels had his life as the bachelor and um, worker in the factory in which his father was a partner. And he had that social life as well. But he also had this other life with Mary Burns and they used um, aliases such as Mr and Mrs Boardman and Mr and Mrs Burns and they lived together as man and wife when they were together. But also they were joined later on by um, Mary's younger sister Lizzie and Lizzie acted as their housekeeper too. He spoke quite disparagingly about the, the middle-class eligible ladies. He was not interested in them at all. In fact, in one piece of writing that we have from Frederick Engels, which is very personal, he lists his favourite things. And one of the favourite things is, um, what is your favourite meal? And he says Irish stew, which obviously is a reference to Mary and what she must have cooked for him. So he would rather that than no matter you know how much of fine dining with the Cheshire Hunt. So he did have this double life. They were very clearly contrasted, but we can see which one he's really at home in. If he despised the bourgeois lifestyle of hunting and so on, clubs and whatever else, why did he carry on doing it? Who knows? I mean, I think, you know, it's clear to say we know that he was a man of supreme contradiction. He, um, you know, inveigled himself into that lifestyle, saw how everything was conducted, and he actually detested it. But at the same time, he was taking the shilling from that lifestyle but his cause was was something else completely. He was dedicated to Karl Marx. He not so much idolised him, but he believed in him profoundly and what he stood for. And Marx, as we mentioned, Terrell, was, was very poor at this period in his life, so the allowance that Engels kept sending him was a real lifesaver. But Engels also helped Marx with his journalism. Can you tell me about that? Yes, certainly at the beginning. Engels did write material that was signed Karl Marx, but Engels also wrote a lot of other uh, material for the New York Daily Tribune, a very progressive American paper that was published without a byline and uh, sometimes published as a leader, that is, you know, in in opinion, the paper endorsed. So I don't quite know whom the paper thought they were paying, um, (laughs) but this was... um, bundled up and um, shipped off to uh, America because there was a contract with Marx and uh, he had the byline. Engels probably didn't want to upset his family or uh, to be seen to be um, having two jobs and two incomes. And, And all the money from those articles went to Marx? Well, so far as we know, people have worked through the accounts. I haven't uh, <laughs> actually done that. But there's, there's an enormous amount of it, and it's really, really impressive because the, um, the New York Daily Tribune wanted a correspondent or correspondence uh, about continental politics. So this is everything from Ireland to 
Peking, taking in Spain and Morocco and going on to Turkey and Russia. So they worked from uh, continental reports that they could read in German and French and uh, kind of produced their own um, analytical view about this um, to be um, retailed in the uh, New York Daily Tribune. Now, Christian, as well as writing articles and working in the spinning mill, Engels continued to be involved in various left-wing organisations and contemplated the likelihood of further revolutions. How important was this to him? I would say that it was extremely important to Engels. Uh, It was important to him not only to analyse, as Marx put it, not only to interpret the world, but to change it. And I think Engels regarded it as important, but he also enjoyed it to be part of that activities and he was involved in all kind of activities Uh, he was one of the leading figures together with Marx in the first international later in the communist league and then in the growing labor movement up from the 1860s Um, and what is probably worth noting is that this was not a very homogeneous group there were all kinds of fights and rivalries and struggles within these left-leaning groups uh, like probably always in the political left and Both Marx and and Engels could become, I would say, really nasty if someone did not share their beliefs. For instance, like uh, Mikhail Bakunin, the the, the anarchist. They had a a conflict on the role of the state during the revolution. And one other conflict that came up frequently was the question where and when to start a revolution. And it might be surprising that both Engels and Marx were often arguing for more patience, Yeah, that time was not ripe yet, that the bourgeois society had to be more developed. And that was a frequent argument that brought them into conflict with, with other groups. Well, exactly on that point, here is a sample of Engels' thoughts uh, on the people who did want to break state apparatus uh, and early, for like the anarchists, as you mentioned, or as he called them, the anti-authoritarians. The anti-authoritarians demand that the political state be abolished at one stroke, even before the social conditions that gave birth to it have been destroyed. They demand that the first act of the social revolution shall be the abolition of authority. Have these gentlemen ever seen a revolution? A revolution is certainly the most authoritarian thing there is. It is the act whereby one part of the population imposes its will upon the other part by means of rifles, bayonets and cannon. Authoritarian means, if such there be at all. And if the victorious party does not want to have fought in vain, it must maintain this rule by means of the terror which its arms inspire in the reactionists. Would the Paris Commune have lasted a single day if it had not made use of this authority of the armed people against the bourgeois? Belinda, Mary Burns died in 1863 and this actually became the cause of a big fallout between Engels and Marx, but probably the biggest one between yes. them. In 1863 when she died, and it, it was an untimely death, she was still a young woman in her prime and he wrote to Marx to tell him of Mary's um, sad passing and Marx wasn't very sympathetic, shall we say, because Marx being Marx, he was in yet another um, situation where he needed funds for his family family and Engels, this upset Engels greatly and it caused the one falling out between the two men. They recovered but Engels was hurt quite badly by what he saw as his friend's um, lack of sympathy towards Mary because he said, you know, Mary, she loved me. 
Mary Byrne's sister Lizzie then becomes Engels' partner, and even though he was a lifelong opponent of marriage, Engels did marry Lizzie just a few hours before her death. Do we know why? We don't know why. I mean, he made a great compromise in marrying her. It was what she truly wanted. We've got to bear in mind that Lizzie and Mary were of Irish proletarian stock. They were also Catholics. So the thought of um, Lizzie going to meet whatever maker she thought there was or believed in as an unmarried woman may have sent the fear of God into her, quite literally. (laughs) But um, he did marry her a few hours before her death. And so she was his only legal wife. She was with him 15 years. Terrell. Well, um, I'm going to be quite daring, and Belinda is welcome to disagree, but I think there is an alternative reading on the uh, deathbed marriage to um, Lizzie in that um, if uh, she's on her deathbed, she's clearly not going to inherit any of his property or uh, upset his family or cause any kind of ruction. And Engels, throughout the years, is very careful to keep his financial and relationship uh, together with his family and not cause that kind of... Uh, a problem that um, marrying a, a working class uh, Irish woman uh, would certainly cause. I mean, they were already horrified um, enough. Jonathan, in the same year that Lizzie died in 1878, Engels published what was to become one of his best known books, known usually as Anti During, or to give it its full title, Herr Eugen During's Revolution in Science. An unpromising title. Tell me why it was so influential. One really needs to understand that in the late 19th century, there was not a lot known about Marx's writings. The only one available is the very forbidding capital. A lot of the writings that we regard as important today, things like The Holy Family, um, The 18th Brumaire, the um, introduction to the critique of Hegel's philosophy of law were long out of print and unavailable. Other crucial writings of Marx, the Paris manuscripts, the so-called German ideology, Uh, had never been published. So people did not know a lot about Marx's ideas. And the anti-During provided them with a simple, condensed, abbreviated um, textbook version of Marx's ideas, or really Engels' version of Marx's ideas, in which Marx appeared as uh, the Darwin of the social world, in which um, Marx's theory of the development of, of different modes of production through human history was the scientific equivalent of um, Darwin's ideas about the evolution of the species. And so the followers of Marx, the first generation of them, um, learned about Marx from Engels. It would really not be unfair to say that Marxism, to a great extent, should really be called Engelsism. Well, let's get a little flavour of anti-During and Engelism, or Engelsism, as you call it, Jonathan. The materialist conception of history starts from the proposition that the production and next to production, the exchange of things produced, is the basis of all social structure. That in every society that has appeared in history, the manner in which wealth is distributed and society divided into classes or estates is dependent upon what is produced, how it is produced and how the products are exchanged. From this point of view, the final causes of all social changes and political revolutions are to be sought, not in men's brains, not in man's better insight into eternal truth and justice, but in changes in the modes of production and exchange. They are to be sought not in the philosophy, but in the economics of each particular epoch. 
It's all about the economics. Um, Terrell, when Marx died in 1883, his magnum opus, Das Kapital, was left unfinished. Of the planned three volumes, only one had been published, and even that one Marx had already revised on Engels' advice. So it was left now to Engels to complete the work. So tell me, how much of an input into Das Kapital did he have? There has been a lot of controversy over the years about Engels's uh, editing or construction of uh, the uh, successive volumes two and three of Capital. Marx left a lot of manuscripts, but they were not in a good state, as Engels himself says. The manuscripts for volume three actually predate uh, Marx's work on Capital Volume One, so they're way out of sync, uh, very likely. Uh, the manuscripts for um, Capital Volume Two do mostly post-date Capital Volume 1. But uh, again, it's, there's a lot of uh, exploration and writing and re redrafting going on there. So Engels made a lot of editorial decisions, and this was uh, very controversial in the 1990s with the Marx-Engels Gesamtausgabe, the complete edition of the works, as to whether Engels was really going to be considered a co-author and his work authentic, or whether the uh, authentic copy text uh, was going to be Marx's manuscripts, and actually Marx's manuscripts won. So Engels does in some ways look like a bad and arbitrary editor. On the other hand, editors have to make decisions, and he wanted to get it into print, and the scholars are still quarrelling over this. OK, well, well, Jonathan, on his death in 1895, Engels left no heirs, so he left his substantial estate to Marx's family, uh, which... Was, is that an illustration of his innate generosity? The no heirs thing is really very interesting. Um, Engels' long relationship with the Burns sisters left no offspring. Given what we know about contraceptive skills and technologies in the 19th century, this is rather a bit surprising. Was it there were fertility issues, or was Engels just really, really good at uh, ensuring that... Um, he would have no children. I don't know the answer to that. I don't think anybody does. But what is the case is that Engels was very close to the surviving Marx's daughters, Laura and Eleanor. He sort of saw them, in a sense, as his own offspring. And so he did, um, he did leave them the rather substantial assets that he had gotten once he had um, sold his interest in the uh, Ehrman and Engels textile factory. He also signed a non-compete agreement with the Ehrman brothers, and they gave him still more money. And then he invested it very shrewdly in the stock market and so it accumulated quite a little fortune by the time of his death. Well, we're now getting to a point where, Terrell, we're looking at Engels' influence. And this is Engels, not necessarily Marx, but his influence on the development of left-wing politics after his death. Is it fair to say that Lenin learnt his, his Marxism essentially from Engels? Yes, I, th I think that's entirely fair. I mean, almost everybody did because um, Engels, and this takes us all the way back to his teenage years, was quite a fluent uh, and punchy writer. So it was much easier to read Socialism, Utopian and Scientific or Anti-During or Ludwig Feuerbach and the end of classical German philosophy as uh, Lenin did and take things from there. It was much more difficult um, tackling capital and there wasn't all that much of Marx himself in print. The manifesto was, the 18th Brumaire was, but uh, it was much, much easier to get along with uh, Engels's kind of uh, journalistic popularising um, accounts for uh, what socialism and communism uh, actually is. Well, with that, we come to the end of today's forum and 
And the point of this programme is not to change the world, but to explain it. And my four guests have done that uh, very well. Thank you to Professors Jonathan Sperber and Terrell Carver and Doctors Belinda Webb-Blofeld and Christian Krell. And to all of you for listening. And I'll leave you with a quote from Engels which demonstrates the breadth of topics that he addressed. This is from the Dialectics of Nature, where after listing several ecological crises created by humans in previous centuries, Engels warns us... At every step, we are reminded that we by no means rule over nature like a conqueror over a foreign people, like someone standing outside nature, but that we, with flesh, blood and brain, belong to nature and exist in its midst and that all our mastery of it consists only in the fact that we have the advantage over all other creatures of being able to learn its laws and apply them correctly.